Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to better understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. Yeah, and you can find our follow-ups on social media. We have an Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, which are all at Skirts to Scrubs, and a Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. You can also check out our website for more information on our episode, show notes, sources, and more at scrubs.com. Yep. And you can subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and review. Apple Podcasts is the best place for that, but you can also do it on Spotify if you want. Yeah. And welcome to our last episode of the season. This has been a long but. season. It's been a long year, <laughs> both on the podcast yeah. and personally. And so I think this season ending is kind of great in a way it's been a fun season lots of really cool topics I feel like a lot of topics that we've been like waiting to talk about and finally got to do which is always fun um and then like trying out new things like our mini series and things like that so hope you all love this season too and definitely go back and give it a listen if you haven't listened to episodes yet but we're gonna end this season with talking about asylums And I feel like we've been hinting at like talking about asylums for super long time. It's always like comes up and we'll be like, oh, we'll talk about that later. It was like when we were talking about witches later and hysteria later, like we finally get to it. So this is is us getting to asylums finally. And then also this episode gets released on Halloween. And spooky. It's spooky season. So everyone knows that asylums are always associated with like spooky season. There's haunted house asylums. I literally went to a haunted house. That was asylum themed and it was stressful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There are a big like haunted house theme. There's literally like American horror story season on asylums. That's actually yeah. one season I watched more than one episode of. I got like two or three episodes in before I was too scared to continue watching the show. I'm easily scared, guys. But anyway, um, we're going to talk about like what makes asylums so scary and just like kind of the history of how asylums came to be and also how women are involved in this story as well so before we get into it alicia like what do you know about asylums or what do you know about like the inner connection of women in asylum so i know i know some about asylums but honestly i can't really like synthesize it all into one cohesive thing i just know that there's a lot of stigma around asylums they used to be called like mental hospitals i don't even know if that's accurate but i do know Mm -hmm. that the treatment of patients was really poor in asylums and like it was kind of just a place that society would put their mentally ill patients and just like shun them yeah and I think women when it comes to mental health hysteria mental illness there's just a lot of stigma there and I think a lot of reasons that women ended up at asylums that probably didn't need to be there And then even people who were there are not getting treated and helped appropriately because, again, it was a bad situation. So those are my thoughts. I did take a whole class on like 19th century women and asylums and sick care and all of that. But honestly, I think I need to do like a deep dive back into it because I don't (laughs) really remember a lot of it. So I'm hoping this jogs my memory. All right, let's get into it then. Asylums are actually birds a bit later than you think in history. I mean, there was definitely probably some form of asylums earlier in history, like in the 1200s and medieval times and things like that. Because asylum 
in the root of like the word is to is like a sanctuary place, like somewhere people can go safely. So people could do things like that right. at like temples and churches and different places. Like you could go somewhere to be protected by a God or they, you know, things like that. But the actual idea of asylums that we're talking about today are like hospitals for people with mental illnesses or communities people can go to um, who have disabilities, mental illnesses. Um, and that's like the type of asylum we're talking about. And those actually started in like the, 18th and 19th centuries, actually. So prior to asylums starting, people with mental illnesses or disabilities were often cared for by family members, um, just the community as a whole, especially if it was like a small community, or they'd be left out to the streets to be beggars or even like left out to die. Like people just kind of like give up caring for them and just let them go basically, really unfortunately. So, and there's also like not a great, public understanding of mental health disorders and the uh, what exactly depression was and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia um and like those are the big ones that often have you know people end up in these places and so there wasn't like a great understanding of what was going on so there wasn't a lot of appropriate treatment either for the community and honestly it became like too much for families to handle and obviously if you have a family member who has like severe depression or any of these disorders it's really difficult. And so it was, it was just becoming a lot in there. And around this time, there was a lot of like public efforts and cities were growing and there's a lot of like industrialization. So it began to be efforts to create these asylums or like hospitals for the mentally ill or insane. When this began, there were a couple like facilities that were built. Mostly they were for wealthy families, though. It'd be like private hospitals that would have private wings for the mentally ill. And then the families would pay for family members to go there. So there was really just only like a resource for the most privileged and affluent communities. And the money that these families spent to like allow their family members to go to these hospitals was huge. It was actually a source of income for hospitals, which were also like relatively new at the time in 1700s, 1800s, like we talked about with the Civil War episode and things like that, like hospitals were slowly growing and becoming like places for the sick to go. So the mental side of the hospitals actually became like revenue for the hospital because these families would pay so much for these people to go there. And then those costs would end up actually covering costs for the entire hospital. And so that was a little interesting. It like helped some hospitals grow, especially hospitals that were like the first mental health hospitals. Like one of them's like, yeah, the Pennsylvania hospital in Philadelphia. So kind of interesting. But what's really interesting is that the first hospital wards for the mentally ill were actually spearheaded by like a certain religious group in america if you could guess the quakers it was the quakers yes (laughs) i had a feeling they are so up to such good (laughs) they are they have they they're a big role in this so the quakers of philadelphia they were the first ones to like try to form a mental hospital. But, you know, I said they do quite good, but now I'm going to take that back because oh. the first, one of the first like mental health hospitals or asylums uh, was actually the basement of the Pennsylvania hospital that's in Philly. It was oh. literally the basement and it was more intended to house these patients. I can't even say patient. Like they wanted to, it was like housing them as inmates because they were like shackles on the walls. Mm. And this is basically what the earliest forms of asylums were. The sole purpose of them 
were to house mentally ill patients because like the community, it was, there was too much pressure in the community for this. And so the goal was basically to like transport them into a new location to live without much consideration for treatment. So really it was just like, you were going to live here, but like places were not equipped to handle and work with very mentally ill people. So they would use a lot of physical restraints on literally these inmates. I can't even call them patients yet. And their strengths are shocking. And they were like photos that we can post um, of like the type of like restraints that they have in museums and stuff now from them. But they'd be like leather straps or even metal shackles on people's wrists and necks. People would wear straight jackets or they'd be like strapped to chairs, kind of like an electric chair, but not there quite yet. It would just be like a chair they'd be like strapped to have to stay in which is horribly inhumane, especially considering it's like not that far back in history. Um, And the purpose, but what's interesting about it is that the purpose, like they weren't doing this because they were like, these people are like so different than everyone else. Or like, we want to torture them for who they are. Or like, we want to embarrass them. That wasn't the initial goal of using restraints. It was more just for like the behavior base. They weren't really sure how to help these people. They weren't really sure how to help them control their behavior. So they would often use restraints to control their behavior, basically, or stop patients from hurting themselves or others. And then apparently, according to the um, article I was reading on this, some patients would even ask to be put in restraints because they were scared of their own actions and what what was happening to themselves, which seems interesting. But also, I could see it because people, you know, go through a lot with various mental health disorders and sometimes it scares them too that that's happening to them Mm -hmm. so restraints seem a little extreme but if that was the only option at the time then maybe they did request it unsure but of course these reasons to use physical restraints are like absolutely no excuse for doing that like they could have worked a little harder to come up with better methods to care for these patients that were inmates so even if they had tried like to use restraints in a reasonable way, it did soon become this like immoral thing that was an avenue for violence against a very vulnerable patient population, basically. So while I'm sure there's like multiple stories that and lots of documentaries cover stuff like this, but one big story I want to mention really shortly is that there was a patient by the name of William Springer in 1829, and he actually died in an asylum because of the restraints he had. So he was mm. strangled to death because he was chained to his bed with like a straitjacket on, things like that, and left unsupervised overnight, basically. And they oh, came no. back and he had died overnight. Yeah, which is awful. And the patient's death was really shocking for the asylum that he was in. And it actually led to the Lincoln Asylum banning the use of restraints and implementing new treatments of patients and really like spearheading what they can do different to be like an anti-restraint asylum. Mm. But if you had to guess, Alicia, what kind of like, if they're trying to be, okay, we're not using restraints anymore. We're going to try to be a little more humane. Do you know what kind of like treatment they'd be interested in doing for patients? Lobotomy? No. So I was actually really surprised by this little segment here, to be honest. So asylums for a while there decided they were going to turn over a new leaf they were like why did we start these hospitals to begin with because there's a population in need so why are we like abusing these patients basically we need to be better True. and yeah so they're they were like let's actually 
do what these places are meant to do and take care of these patients. And therefore, there was this wave called moral treatment. And it was this big thing with asylums that all the asylums started to do, literally called moral treatment. And it was the idea that you could cure mental illnesses, which we know they're not curable now, but you could cure mental illnesses if you treat mentally ill patients with kindness and then you appeal to their rational parts of their mind, whatever that means. Oh. So they I think they thought okay. that like, if you, you know, are with them when they're lucid and are with them for the parts that don't, you know, aren't plagued by whatever mental illness they have, then you could like help them bolster that, I guess, to like overpower whatever mental illness is going on, which might have some truth in it, unsure. But so they were really like, we need to treat these people with kindness, which great love. This theory was actually developed by a man named William Two in the late 1700s. He worked at a small hmm. mental hospital called The Retreat. And Tuke was actually a Quaker too. So the Quakers have a lot to do with these asylums. And he was actually recruited to come to this hospital to retreat after a patient had died there. So it was kind of like similar situation to the Lincoln Asylum. They had a patient die and they were like, we need to do something different because whatever we're doing right now is like not why we started working here. So he was recruited there and he was the first to pioneer like these humane methods of treatment, basically. So he believed that patients need a pleasant place to live, a peaceful housing, like surrounded by nature, more of a community setting versus a hospital. Um, yeah. Patients need to actually eat food and good food. And they needed to have like occupational and group therapy oh, nice. sessions. Yeah. So it was like very much the goal was to treat patients with like humility and humanity and respect them and be really gentle and really kind. And it's very much like sounds like what community-based therapy and rehabilitation centers are today it's like very much like a community-based setting where you're really living with other people who are going through the same thing as you you're going through all these like group therapy and individualized therapy and it's all about like being in touch with yourself so this is what William Took was like this is the way to do it it's called moral treatment and so he was like a big part in asylums really taking over this form of treatment so a lot of asylums like we're like okay we're gonna start doing this um, some other really influential people in asylum reform, which is the period we're in, was Philip Pinnell. He was a French psychiatrist. He worked in asylums as a psychiatrist, and he started off with doing what everyone else was doing, which was basically like all these old methods of treating mentally ill patients, such as bloodletting, which was started by Galen. Yeah. And so he was doing these like old methods of treating patients that he basically figured out he's like these don't actually work there's no clinical evidence that these work and these are just harming patients so he was like a big proponent of stopping the use of bloodletting and he really pioneered like working individually with patients and instead of having like oh we're just gonna put all these people who are mentally ill in a room and try to treat them all together instead he was like oh no like these people have different disorders we need to treat them individually and then if they need to be treated like together, they should be grouped into like what similar disorders and experiences they're having. And then he also stopped the practice of people visiting asylums. Like it was like a thing to oh. do for the wealthy and touristy that oh, you could visit so asylums. He stopped people were like just a like show, boring. basically. Oh, yes, like that's people weird. go and like they that. would like laugh and like make fun of patients. And it's just no. so sad to think of that. Yeah. So he was like, we need to stop doing this. We need to treat these patients humanely. Like these are real people with real problems. We can't like make this an attraction type of thing. So 
very great psychiatrist, broke a lot of like generational barriers of psychiatry and how you treat patients. He was basically, we need to do clinical practice. Um, there were a couple of things. I don't remember like specifically what treatments, but he'd be like, oh, if they like anecdotally helped patients, like then he would keep doing them. But if they were causing like physical harm to patients and it was obviously not helping and patients were really uncomfortable with the treatment, then he'd be like, I'm not doing this basically. And then other pioneers in asylum reform were actually a few influential women, which are awesome because this is 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s, even soon. Not really a time where women were at the top of their field, like making huge changes. So very exciting to see some names. So one big name is a woman by the name of um, Nellie Ply. So she was a journalist in New York and she had been like proposing a article to the New York world, you know, like newspaper. And they had turned on her article for like an asylum article. And then she was like, hmm, mm-hmm. interesting. I'm going to go check out these asylums and see what, like what's going on in there. So she actually went undercover and like oh, disguised herself like as a mentally Ill. situation. Yeah. She like was like, what disguise self mentally ill patient which is considering she's a woman what we'll talk about later i'm not surprised she got into the asylum so easily and she was only there 10 days a little confused about that because how did you get in and leave was she just like jokes on you i'm actually a journalist i'm not sure but she was in there and then she got herself out and she published a six-part series called the 10 days in the madhouse she reported on her time in the asylum in the new york world and her reporting led to like increase in public funding of asylums and it even started like a new wave of investigative journalism and like going undercover to like as a part of journalism, which I think is kind of cool. Another cool woman was a woman by the name of Dorothea Dix. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's like super involved in asylum reform, which is what we're yes, talking about. Exactly. Yeah. And so she was actually a school teacher and she basically started off with her going to Boston. She went to this, like this jail in Boston, which is like not an asylum, but whatever. Went to a jail in Boston and she was to teach like Sunday school or something. But when she was there, she was shocked by how many mentally ill people were there and like the inhumane conditions that they were like keeping them in. So this experience like shook her to her core and it led to her career in advocating for humane care of the mentally ill. And she would like, she was super involved. She would write stories of what she witnessed in asylums and um, like stories of the mentally ill. And she would present it to Congress and like legislator. And they would like write it into like why laws were being passed. It would like write the stories of the patients that she witnessed like in there as like evidence of like, this is why we're doing this law, which is kind of cool. And so she was actually really integral in the passing of like, a nationwide law by Congress in 1851 that led to the state funding of mental hospitals. So basically they were like, this issue is not like a federal issue. We're going to make it a state issue and states are going to fund mental hospitals. So that's why when you think of like asylums now where people talk about um, like psych hospitals, they'll talk about like, oh, it's the state hospital or the state asylum. And then she even ended up going to Europe and starting a lot of asylums and like humane mental hospitals in Europe, actually. And she even mm. met with the Pope. I saw that and I was like, no way. Two people in a row that met with the Pope. And then at the end of her life, it's kind of interesting. She actually ended up at a had an asylum at the end of her life. What? I'm not 100% sure why. Oh, yes. 
in the in an asylum, and it was actually an asylum in New Jersey that she had helped fund to create as well. That's crazy. Yeah, so it really came full circle for Dorothea. Kind of interesting, but because of like these women's efforts, and I'm sure many other people who were like advocating for asylums, they really wanted asylums you know, to do good. And many hospitals were built because of them and ran by states and ran by the counties that own the hospitals because they really wanted like the best treatment for these patients. But this only worked like for a while. You know, asylums were built to their namesake to be safe places for the mentally ill to go and get appropriate treatment. But as they became like, as the, as the need for asylums increased, they, the public funding and the state funding was not able to keep up basically with the asylum need. So mm. asylums became more popular. They became like super overcrowded and they'd be like, say they'd have a capacity of like 400. They would have like 600, 700 people yeah. living there. It was just like the capacity was super high and the superintendents who ran the centers became super overwhelmed. Like these are like public hospitals. There were private like asylums and private mental hospitals that probably didn't have the same story because they had like a certain amount of people and you had to pay to go there and public ones that were run by the state and by the counties super overwhelmed and later like understaffed as well so the staff soon began to resort back to the inhumane methods it happened before like the asylum reform period so they actually like went the asylums that like reached this peak of like we're doing all this great treatment we're being great places for people to go and then everyone was like, asylums are great. Let's fund them. And then they funded them through state dollars. And then the state couldn't afford to fund them. So then they went back down again, basically, mm. in the way they treated their patients. So they went back to these inhumane methods of using restraints and even sedating patients. And because of the, like, locally, the local governments having to do fundings, the, they were just like, there was too much economic pressure. And a lot of hospitals, like, lost a lot of their support in the communities. They lost a lot of staffing. Um, especially as like world wars started happening or things like that. Like there was less people in the workforce and just like, it was kind of like all coming to this moment of like, these places are not well run anymore. We can't care for these patients appropriately. And when people get really stressed and don't have the right ability, like they started to do bad things, to these patients again, basically. And by, by the end of the 1800s, which is like around a time this was getting bad again, there was an inspector at an asylum and he basically said, it would be astonishing to find that any cures could ever be made here. So he was um, like, this is in a very bad state. Yeah. At yeah. this point, asylums were what you see in like every scary movie. Like they were these inhumane places with unspeakable things happening to patients uh, and just horrid, horrid things. So I'm not going to like dive into the terrible things that happen to people because it's a little triggering and like, a lot. And I think if you're really interested in that, there's a lot of resources to learn about it through documentaries and other podcasts and stuff. But I just want to mention like a couple of big things. One is that they would do insulin shock treatments to patients. They would give patients like super large doses of insulin and it would put these patients into like a hypoglycemic coma. And they would do that for like weeks to keep them sedated, which is awful. And what a horrible use of insulin. Just crazy. They'd also do lobotomies, like you mentioned. So they'd cut out your brain or they would cut like connections to the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that makes you who you are, basically. They'd cut that connection, which would make people into like 
not zombies, but just like they would lose all parts of themselves in a way. Like they would lose who they are. Their personalities would change drastically. Um, and it just like was really bad for patients like psyche and just for their like reintegration in the world if that was like the goal of them being there. So lobotomy was very bad. And the patients, of course, were not like consented going into this. It was very much like a medical research tool and a way to abuse patients in a way. And then they also did electroconvulsive um, therapy, which is where seizures are induced with the hope of like curing and whatever they're going through. And what's interesting about this is that we actually already talked about ECT in one of our old episodes. Um, we talked about how it's actually still used today in some places in a very humane and thought out and researched way. So it's kind of interesting because that was for sure a form of like inhumane treatment of those patients in the past, right. but it's very different now. So I encourage you to listen to that episode that Alicia did on ECT, which I think was her last season, season three, maybe. Yeah, it was very interesting. Definitely recommend. Super interesting. Yeah. So yeah, they were getting really bad. And um, to even go like a little bit more into it, there were a lot of asylums, not a lot. There were a couple of asylums that were like known and infamous for how brutal their treatment was. And there's like a lot of places you can learn about them. One was called Bedlam in London. Oh, in this yeah. place, they would like drug their patients into throwing up and having diarrhea. And they, they thought that that would like wash the mental illness out of them. Or they would do things like burn them or place them in ice baths. There was another place called Willowbrook in New York. It was a state school for children with mental and physical disabilities. And this one's like mind boggling bad. I'm not going to get into it. It's awful. But one thing I do want to mention is that there was a lot of state-funded medical research done on patients at this school. So apparently a lot of research on hepatitis is actually from this school in New York, where the author of the article talking about it said that it was it's some of like the most unethical medical experiments ever to be performed on children in wow. U.S. history. So that just kind of tells you how insane asylums were and like how truly bad they were getting for patients. But moving on to like the 1900s, this has been going on for a while now and asylums are like really beginning to fall out of favor. They're like eating up government money of funding of healthcare, And they're like really awful places for mentally ill patients. Additionally, like now, like the world wars are happening, like I was talking about, and that took a really huge hit on the workforce. There wasn't even enough people to run the hospitals in the asylum. So it was just not looking good for them overall. Like everything at this point is like pointing towards like asylums are not the way to go. Mm-hmm. Also, interestingly enough, at this time, more psychiatric medications were being created and there were now like new options to treat mentally ill patients that weren't really possible when asylum started in 18th and 19th century. Mm. So now we have medications that can treat patients. They also was like a larger base of the specialty of psychiatry now. Um, And psychiatrists were a lot more interested in working with patients and talking to them and things like that in settings outside of asylums. They didn't want to go to asylums. They wanted to have inpatient hospital wards. They wanted to have outpatient hospital centers, like private clinics or like group settings, things like that, but that weren't asylum based. So in they were just like, we're more interested in doing stuff like that and having a practice rather than like this hospital with really bad conditions for patients. There was like a lot more options for mentally ill patients at this time. Additionally, In the 1970s, a law was passed that protected patients by setting like a basic standard of care Mm. and banning the use of patients as a workforce. 
okay. And yeah, maybe. So at this point, like asylums, like I said, are doing awful. And at this point, they're like using patients out as workers in the hospitals too, or in the asylums. So this law basically like toppled asylums. Like after this one, because they weren't reaching like the basic standard of caring for a patient, they were using like abusing patients in many ways. So this law basically cut off asylums and they quickly began to close. And the era of like deinstitutionalization. But like, what does this mean for mentally ill patients? Because asylums were started so that these patients in this community would have a safe place to go for treatment and care, which was not great. These asylums closed and now these patients needed somewhere to go, whether they were already housed at the asylum or, you know, were someone who would have needed to go there. Unless you came from an affluent family where you could afford private and very expensive mental health centers. You basically just ended up in communities and hospitals and psych clinics that were not able to handle how many patients all of a sudden needed this mental health care. At the time, elderly people who would also be in asylums because if you had dementia or things like you're just getting old, people didn't want to like care for you anymore for some reason that they would send you to an asylum. So now the elderly really needed places to go. So nursing homes started being created and becoming a thing. But even nursing homes have their own level of like horrors, depending on the funding of the home and like who works there. They're not always always the best options for elderly patients. And the mentally ill became part of this system that basically rotates patients between crisis centers, outpatient clinics, mm-hmm. and long-form treatment centers, such as like psychiatric wards or rehabilitation centers, which is basically like how it is today still. So that's kind of like the system that took up the mentally ill community. With that, now we have like a strong basis of what asylums are and like the history of asylums. But I really briefly want to talk about like women and why, what this has to do with women and women's health and how women are, you know, affected by asylum history. So with that, Alicia, what do you think women were often like admitted to asylums for? Like, I don't know, maybe because they like wanted to do things. Like, I feel like when I think about the rest here, I think about how it was like these women who had thoughts that were outside of the acceptable thoughts in society, which were just that like the woman is the homemaker mm-hmm. who stays at home, raises the kids and like submits to her husband. And so I feel like any woman who was outside mm-hmm. of that norm maybe got admitted. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. So obviously women who like did have mental illnesses would be admitted like other like men basically but there was off there was also this avenue of like admitting women who were assertive and ambitious and independent and had their own thought and were educated like that was literally an avenue for women to enter asylums these women often would like defy domestic roles or they were like annoyances to the family and that's kind of like a theme i feel like we have throughout the podcast like you mentioned like the rest cure we talked about just people being uncomfortable by women who are strong and independent, especially in a time where there was like very strong gender roles. So that was like a huge reason why women went to asylums at the time, which is awful to think of. Um, An example of this is that like one doctor, a psychiatrist, literally went to this school for girls and reported that that school was training girls to enter asylums because they were training girl and teaching girls to be like independent like educated women and that was not okay like that can mean you can end up in an asylum because people would want to you know restrain you from going out into the world doing your thing basically what's even more insane is that there wasn't like a criteria 
for women to be classified as mentally ill. Like if, you know, if they have the signs that most people do when they have certain mental illnesses, like that's different. But if people just wanted to commit you because they thought you were doing too much, then it wasn't that hard. Like literally all you had to do, your husband just had to say that you were insane. That was it. That was all that they needed for you to be committed. That's crazy. Yeah. There was no law that's like, oh, you have to have this or you need to do that or you need to have this symptom or we need to have like this many people say this about you, you know, like, no, if your husband said you were insane, they took you to the asylum right away. That's crazy. And yeah. And when these women were admitted, it's not like they were treated with like the most respect or something. They were treated awfully. Like aside from the terrible things that would happen to them in terms of like sexual assault Mm. or like physical assaults and things like that in asylums and just avenues for abuse still and violence against women. They would do things like use chloroform on them to keep them quiet and put them in shackles and restraints, mm-hmm. like, a, you know, use embarrassment through nudity and oh, just really terrible things oh to God, women. Oh my God, I hate that. Yes. And then additionally, like, what's the most common thing we talk about about why people think women are insane? Their uterus? Yes, the uterus. Women are hysterical. They have hysteria. That's why they're insane. And the reproductive organs are the culprit of it all. Do you know what they would do? You know what they would do to these women? Hysterectomies. Wait, what? I don't know if they went that far, oh, but oh. <laughs> they would live in case you. <laughs> but I mean, they might have. I don't know. Rain it in. Rain it in. <laughs> Alicia. No. <laughs> Looking too far. No, I'm kidding. No, it's, it's not too far because listen to what they did. They're like, we need to control this. We need to calm their uteruses because like, obviously their uterus is causing them to have all these independent thoughts and jobs. Like what? So they would, decla- they would, they would cut off women's clitorises, oh. clitori. Oh, that's messed yeah, up. Yeah. Because like their sexual feelings is why they're so independent. Oh my God. Obviously. This, I hate um, it. Yep. They would remove um, her ovaries. It's pretty awful as well. Um, they would inject ice water into the vagina. Ah, uh, yeah. They would put leeches on the vagina what? and on the vulva. Yeah. So these, I mean, these things are like obviously. I don't know who would actually think these were treatment methods. They are just ways to abuse women. And obviously, why would putting a leech on their vagina make them less mentally ill or less submissive or not submissive, less independent? You know, like. Yeah wild one really crazy story is a woman named elizabeth packard she was committed to an asylum because her husband said that she was mentally insane and her husband by the way they had like six kids together they've been together a really long time but then he like then he became this like religious convert who was like really radical in his religious views and she was like i'm not into this and she like publicly was like i'm gonna enter i'm gonna go to a different church i don't like this blah 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 so the husband ended up calling a psychiatrist to come over. And because she she basically was like confiding in the psychiatrist, like my husband has this really radical religious view. I don't agree with him. And the psychiatrist was like, okay, well, we're going to commit you to the asylum. Because he was like, wow, she went against her husband's views. She was over 40 years old. These are the reasons he gave for why she was committed. She was over 40. So apparently that's a criteria. Yeah, okay. And she... Yep. And she didn't shake the doctor's hand upon entering the house. What? Yes. So it's pretty obvious that her case is just like, oh, you didn't respect me. Well, sucks for you. You're going to an asylum. You know, it's just like abusive 
controlling ways, you know, to control women. She ended up going to a mental hospital for three years. And she stayed there until her oldest son reached 21. He was able to like advocate for her release. Upon release, she went home and then her husband locked her in the house, like boarded up all the windows and doors (gasps) and locked her in the house for like a couple years. And she actually, he was like, you're insane. And it got to the point where she like eventually was able to get out, get a lawyer, went to court Mm. and had to prove in court that she was sane. She was sane the whole time, but she had to literally prove after she was able to get the divorce in court and prove her sanity. She started the Anti-Insane Asylum Society, Mm. which advocated for people not going to asylums in inhumane reasons and ways treated there. And then she also worked with divorced women to, like, make sure that they were safe and not being sent to asylums and, like, just were safe in their spaces, basically. Which is wild. So asylums were just a way to abuse women. Um, Overall, super bad. Not great. Not actually helping. The women who were mentally ill. Another important aspect to point out before we finish up is the way that women of color were treated in these spaces as well, because asylums especially were like growing after um, slavery ended and it was like another avenue of abuse for people. So there's not, I was reading one article about it. There's not like a ton of documentation, it seems, um, from women of color's perspective, because a lot of the stories are from the white perspective. Yeah, but what this you know article was doing was just trying to compile a lot of the stories from women of color and their experiences in asylums and like experiences in that time period. And the general theme of what they were talking about for a lot of it was, you know, these the white women who were being committed were being committed because they weren't listening to their husbands and they were looking for jobs and they were educated, things like that. The women of color who were being sent to these asylums were being sent because um they were like seen as violent was a really big theme. So these women would be like, wow, you're really violent. So we're going to send you to the asylum. And then they would use like restraints and, you know, straight jackets. And they would say like, oh, women require straight jackets more than men do and things like that. So really terrible. They would also say that um, women of color were hypersexual and that they'd be like walking around their houses nude or walking around the public, like completely nude, which I'm like, who is doing that? Just really racist beliefs about women of color. That is like definitely a thing you see in a lot of literature during that time, unfortunately. So a lot of these um, these racist beliefs that women of color were more violent, they're more sexual, led to them like thinking that they were insane. These were excuses for women of color to be deemed as insane and admitted to asylums and be committed there, which is awful. These thoughts often leaked into like psychiatry as a field view of um, patients of color as well which is really disappointing so I just really wanted to point that out um, as well so overall I think it's really interesting how the story of how we treat the mentally ill like what that says about society and how there was a lot of like efforts and really good intentions but at the same time like people take advantage of people when it's when they're given the chance I mean I think it's really interesting also says, says a lot about like women and how the avenues that were used to abuse women in these spaces. And it just says a lot about society, I think. So I'm glad we got to talk about it. I'd love to chat more about it and listen to like what you think, Alicia, and what your thoughts are. I love that. Let's do it. Okay, Alicia. So what are your thoughts? 
this was an interesting episode. I feel like it reminded me of things that I did previously know about asylums and had honestly forgotten. Did it spark your memory? Some, yeah. The first thing that kind of struck me was the ease by which women could enter asylums literally just because their husband was like you're insane i think that was crazy like that is insane to me because that just shouldn't be how quickly and easily this happens and so it makes a lot of sense that that one woman that journalist nelly Bly, was able to get into the Mm -hmm. asylum so easily like you mentioned exactly yeah that was definitely interesting and the story of Elizabeth Packard was really powerful and frustrating, but also definitely is a good way of showing this whole situation that kind of was unfolding and the way that women were treated and how easily that could turn around for them, like in a bad way. Yeah, so quickly for no reason. I also was really surprised by the like uptick I guess in this history of like the moral treatment and how they were like there was like this huge period of asylum reform and everyone had mm-hmm. such good intentions for the community I just I didn't expect that going into the history I didn't know much about asylums before researching this episode and I was really surprised by that and I was like oh I didn't expect this and I think what's interesting is the the time was really good how I mentioned by William Took that basically his theory of like how asylums should be run in terms of like being a community-based thing. Oh with yeah, really with like therapy. I loved that. That was and, cool. occupational therapies and group therapy. Mm-hmm. It's like pretty similar to what rehab looks like today. Substance abuse is similar to like what outpatient facilities look like for psychiatric like treatment. And mm-hmm. it's just made me think of like how I guess do you think what's your opinion on how the treatment of psych patients today is like similar or different? to this asylum history I guess yeah I mean just what you said is like something that reminds me of some similarities in terms of we have group therapy and individual therapy I think though one of the big differences is now we don't necessarily have set asylums where like hundreds Mm -hmm. and thousands of patients are kept at a single time at least to my knowledge um, but rather we have these maybe the closest thing would be like a long term psychiatric care facility, which even then I don't know mm-hmm. necessarily how many of those exist because I think that's pretty challenging, but I'm sure they do exist. And I think mm-hmm. the quality of the care obviously follows the money, which is also a similarity. Like it's way yes, easier sure. to provide fantastic care if you are wealthy and are going to a really nice place and if not you're not going to get as good of care I think another thing I thought was similar but kind of in a bad way is this idea that when there's too many people requiring care they kind of get ping-ponged around and I think sometimes Mm -hmm. I can see that in our care where a person will go to an inpatient facility then they get ping-ponged to an outpatient psychiatrist who then goes and then they go to another facility or a different place and so I think like that is something that I in some cases have seen continue uh yeah just a few thoughts on that yeah yeah I agree I think what's interesting and one of the articles actually posed this question of like 
is the system we have now even what patients need or like is this utopian idea of like the perfect asylum in the truest form of like being a safe space for people with psychiatric conditions like is that what people need like it's hard to know like what's the best option and I do think the system now is also like kind of overrun by the need of the population yeah, I think absolutely like my experience yeah I would say like my experience in my psych rotation um would be like patients coming into the crisis center through the hospital and then we need to go up to the psych unit but the psych unit was full so like do they just wait it out do they come back do we send them somewhere else yeah well I was thinking about that in terms of your original question of like oh is it better for them to have like a true utopian kind of society or is it better right the way we have it now and I'm not saying that what we have now is great but I do think in terms of like outpatient care I think it's better to be in your own home and like be where you're comfortable and be surrounded by your family or like people you love so that was like one thought I had but I I agree yeah it's it's interesting it's just a hard system that I think in the history it was a system that was like didn't have the all the resources it needed for the pressing problem. I think it's the same today in a, in a different way. That's not as extreme, but still the same. Like I remember one patient I worked with who what kind of like committed himself in the ED or something like that. I don't remember exactly, but he'd have like substance abuse and he's not from here. So we couldn't like go back to family. So we couldn't like discharge him with, for some reason. So he was like hauling around to homeless shelters. He was like trying to find somewhere to go as like an in-between before his family could come pick him up from out of state. Um, but some of the homeless shelters like wouldn't take him because of his psych history or wouldn't take him because of his substance abuse history. And he was literally there for a whole week, keep himself busy basically while he found somewhere to go. And just like, there was nowhere to send him when it was um, just a lot, honestly. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to kind of talk about is I think obviously women were abused a lot in the system, but I, I think by talking about how much women were abused for not even being insane and being committed, there's still the side of like women who do have psychiatric conditions and actually really need help. Um, so just something I thought of is like, how can we as providers, you know, who care for, for people who identify as women, like how can we like protect them from like those avenues of abusing women like taking advantage of them but also still help them advocate for themselves and for like us to advocate for them yeah I just think at its base the core of the thing and the relationship is to listen to your patients and I think if you know them well and you believe them then knowing their baseline knowing their change from baseline I think is helpful um, so if you're taking care of someone throughout their pregnancy and then they become different in their pregnancy or at the end that's something that you can comment on of like oh you seem different or things have changed and doing the work Mm -hmm. of advocating for them like and educating them to know like the signs to look for when things are changing and like knowing that you are an option for them to turn to they don't have to directly run to a psychiatrist if they are needing help but like no they should lot of psychiatrists want obese to prescribe meds too Mm -hmm. yeah I agree. So those are my just like baseline thoughts. And I obviously it's more complicated than that. It's a patient to patient, person to person issue. But if I were to dumb it down, I would just be like, listen to your patients and like advocate for them based off their individual needs. And similar, I just think of like postpartum depression. And I think about this because I was on LND a couple of weeks ago and like 
the doctor I was working with was like, oh, this is my spiel I give to all patients before I send them home. And part of the spiel was talking about postpartum depression and being like, it's very normal to have up and down blues. You ever get to a point where like you really feel different and you really feel like disconnected from your baby or your family or you feel hopeless or like have any of these feelings that are just not normal and just aren't sitting right with you, like call the office basically was her spiel. And like, we have a lot of resources for you. And it's interesting to think of now of like how people in asylums abuse women. And I think of how a lot of companies like to take advantage of people, especially when they're really vulnerable in healthcare. And I think an example is like, you would be like, oh, if you take these supplements, you're going to feel so much better. And it's just like the supplements aren't doing anything. They're just using you for your money and taking advantage of you in a vulnerable time. Like when you're postpartum, I think like going back to the placenta episode and advocating for like, oh, if you send your placenta to this company and the company makes it into these pills and you take these pills, you won't have postpartum depression. And that was like one of the things people do who want to eat their placenta. That's just not going to do anything. If you feel like you have postpartum depression, you should talk to your doctor. We can get you actual real evidence-based help. You know, I think keep an open line. And if you're someone listening to this and you're not medicine, like talk to your doctor. And if you feel like you don't have a good relationship with that doctor you can't have an open line of communication where they can present you really good evidence that you can easily consume and understand then maybe find a different doctor <laughs> like people out there that want to help you for sure yeah yeah so you know this is the end of our fourth season in this episode alone I think I mentioned like maybe four or five of our past episodes mm-hmm. like so if you want to learn more with us and join us in season five in the new year then go ahead and subscribe to our podcast and whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Then also leave us a rating and review. That really helps our podcast get more listeners and grows our community. So it's a great place to do that on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Yep. And you can also follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. And you can check out our website for more information, our show notes, sources, merch, and more. And that's from scrubs.com. And lastly, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. See you next time, friends, yeah. in the new season. Bye, everyone. We'll miss you. Bye. <laughs>